Just before we start, some of our discussion this time contains adult themes, which might not be suitable for everybody. And nothing too terrible, but I just thought you should know. Hello, 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 and a very warm welcome to this, a new series of the Graham Norton Book Club, an Audible original. If you are joining us for the first time, where have you been? I jest. We're delighted to have you along, and just to do a new listener start here, each time on the club, we have a book of the week, chosen by one of our ten doughty club members, more of them later, a lot more of them. We talk to a well-known voice who has brought an audiobook to life, We get an insider's guide to what's hot and what's hotter on the book charts, and we get three of the best recommendations, this time from my podcast partner and page perusal and someone whose work you might know from The Guardian, The Observer, BBC Radio 4's front row, and pretty much anywhere anyone is talking interestingly about books. Alex Clark. Hello, Alex. Hello, Graham. How are you? I'm very well. Start of term. How have you been? What's up? Well, it's been quite a wet summer. Out here in the hills in Ireland, I would say in the orchard, and I'm talking about an orchard later on, by the way, it's been pretty soggy, uh, but we've had good berry harvests. Is that bucolic enough for you? That promises a very bad winter, doesn't it? Berries, lots of berries. Oh, does it? Yeah, apparently. Oh, old countryman lore there. Yeah. Oh dear. Okay, I shall get the chimneys swept. Uh, But you went viral, I believe, on, was it on Trisha you went viral? Well, I mean, it's my version of viral in that a lot of people liked it. I don't know probably that, you know, a young person would agree, but it was a young person who was my downfall here. I went to my niece's wedding in what I thought was a very, very smart mid-blue linen outfit with a rather beautiful and elaborate neck and a red hat. And I said to my 17-year-old nephew, "Uh, darling, did you know that your shoelaces are not done up. And he said, this is fashion, Alex. And by the way, why have you come dressed as Paddington? (laughs) Which I then announced on Twitter. And apparently, this is the kind of content, I should say, X, that people like on X. So now I am Paddington Bear to my entire family. Well, as long as you haven't actually got a label hanging around your neck, I think we're all right. (laughs) So it's very nice to be back in Harness, I use the term advisedly, talking about books in all ways, shapes and forms. This time, our book of the week is Mick Heron's Slow Horses. See, I told you. The thriller that has become the basis for a wildly successful TV series and the first in his series of novels about the failed spies of the fictional espionage scrap heap Slough House. Here to talk about it are four of our far-from-failed book clubbers, Stuart, who chose the book for us, Katie, Caverne, and Cherie. Hello to you all. Hi. Hi. Oh, lovely to see you all again. So, Stuart, are you still the RSPBPR? No longer RSPBPR. Um, I decided that with my very limited bird knowledge, I couldn't really stretch it out much longer. So, not only changes in my life... My Graham has stopped going to work on oil tankers, so he's going to be home permanently. And just to get any new listeners up to speed, Graham, of course, is not me, it's your husband. Yeah, after 16 years, (laughs) we are going to have to try to get accustomed to living with each other all the time. Keep us posted. And now, Gavern, I normally introduce you as a a social worker, but apparently no more. Yes, I've just started, like, a PhD, and then just expanding my role as a heritage officer... 
you know, it doesn't sound exciting and it's not. Okay. <laughs> 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 it's just like a life, a life change just occurred. But yeah. Gavern, yeah. it's more exciting than what's happened to me over the summer, honestly. And also it's a new job, Gavern. Don't knock it publicly. True, true. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I don't know who's listening, right? Yeah, okay. And how how are you, Sheree? What have you got to report? I mean, this is like Groundhog Day, but Seagull Day. Because if you remember a few seasons ago, I had a seagull issue. I've got another seagull issue. It's you, Are you isn't sure it? It's, it's you. a different seagull. You're the seagull. problem. <laughs> but he is aggressively yeah. tapping on my windows and waking me up. So it, it's a matter for the police, probably. I don't my know. My God, he's the Heathcliff of the seagull world. <laughs> it's not quite wildlife, but animals are impacting your life as well, Katie, aren't they? I've just come off a stint as a cat sitter. It's a very spoiled cat. I had to go and live with it. He gets fed four times a day and he gets angry if you don't watch him poo. So I've, I've just spent you know, like a week watching a cat poo. the reverse of usual cat behaviour. I know. But normally they really don't want you to watch. I think he is a special breed. I, I don't know. He sounds But he's special. called Frijoles. Good luck Odd. with that. And very quickly, Stuart, I must know, uh, when I introduce you later for actual chat about uh, slow horses, uh, what? how do I introduce you? What are you Well. Now? I was hoping I would be able to remain a lady of leisure, but Graham's not having it and he's made me get a job. So I'm currently working part-time in a toy shop. I mean, what could be more fun than working in a toy shop in the lead-up to Christmas? That does it sound does joyful. mean that I'm having, to, I'm having to interact with children, which is quite low down on the list of things that I enjoy doing. But, um, so yeah. All right then, well, I advise you all to go and see if there's anything nice in your nose bags and we'll come back to you later to see if you thought the slow horses were best in show or last across the line. After we've spoken to Mick Heron himself and after Alex has given us her three of the best, which is all about what today, Alex? Well, come with me on a journey into the world of gangs and I don't necessarily mean criminal gangs. I mean inspired by slow horses, people who find themselves thrown together for various different reasons and take the story from there. Okay, well, I look forward to hearing more about all of that. And while we're in the area of dealing with difficulties, here is someone who has faced them head on. My diagnosis in 2021 meant I got an explanation for why so many things that seemed easy for other people were impossible for me. Reading nonfiction, for example, unless it's autobiographical like this book. Time management, planning. Self-control, tidying up, starting tasks, finishing tasks, organising, not crying and having a near panic attack when your online bank glitches, impulsive decisions and purchases. I have 23 rolls of turquoise laminate if anyone needs it. Stand-up comedian Shaparak Kasandi with part of her recent book Scatterbrain about her ADHD diagnosis and how it changed the way she saw herself and her life. She'll tell us about that and about lifting it off the page and into our ears later on in our Talking Books slot. Right, let's saddle up our slow horses. River Cartwright was a promising young intelligence officer until a training exercise went badly wrong and he virtually blew up 120 people and actually managed to close down King's Cross Station, a career-limiting move. But River is well-connected with his grandfather, a former MI5 head of service. So instead of being thrown out, he's dumped in Slough House with a bunch of other MI5 no-hopers. 
the slow horses, who all of something that has ground their careers to a halt. They're kept shuffling papers onto the beady eye of the slowest horse of all, their dissolute, disagreeable boss, Jackson Lamb. The real spy work is being done down at Regent's Park, the MI5 HQ. It's all deeply depressing, except there is something they've been asked to do by Lady Di, Diana Taverner, the current MI5 deputy head. And that's check out a right-wing journalist, Robert Hobden. Then a live feed turns up on the internet of a young man being held by a radical group or threatening to cut off his head if their demands aren't met. There seems to be a connection between Hobden and the hostage-takers. River and the horses aren't supposed to get involved, but inevitably they do. Mick Heron's first crime series featured the Oxford-based detective Zoe Bohm. Slow Horses, his first Slough House book, came out in 2010 and didn't do that well. In fact, his publishers weren't keen to do any more, and it was a US firm that picked up the next book. Success followed, and then a smash hit when the books were adapted for TV, with Gary Oldman as Lamb, Jack Loudon as Cartwright, and Christian Scott Thomas as Diana. Mick has just published a new, non-Slough House title, The Secret Hours. So we started talking about that. Was this the start of another series? It was going to be a total standalone. Uh, the opening chapter, which is about a man being roused from his Devon fastness in the middle of the night by assailants who attack his cottage. And all I knew about him was that he was obviously going to be a man with a past. He's a retired spook. We know that very, very quickly. And it was only when I went further into plotting the book that it took me back in the direction I'd come from. It was um, turned out not to be quite as much of a standalone as I had originally intended. So Stuart Bain, he's the book clubber who chose Slow Horses, and he's got some questions, and they're great. And one is a very uh, basic question, is when you wrote Slow Horses, did you know that it was going to be a series? Uh, no, I mean, I obviously have a, not a great track record of writing standalones, because that was, again, just intended to be a book. I was simply interested in writing about these characters and that thing happening to them. It was only as I was approaching the end of that book that I realised I was going to hang around in that world for a bit longer. When we discuss books in the book club, there's something that comes up all the time, particularly with younger readers, where they really resist unlikable characters. They want to like all the characters. And on the face of it, Jackson Lamb is so sort of unlikable. And Stuart's also asking about, in your head, do you know why people have found him so endearing, almost lovable? I don't. Uh, and I sometimes worry that they are finding him likable for the wrong reasons. But I made a, a decision quite early on, not quite in the first book, not even quite in the second book. But after that point, I thought, no, I'm going to keep my distance from him. So there are moments in those first two novels where you you hear what he's thinking and you know what he's about. But after that, I stopped doing that because I thought I want to keep him at arm's length so that the reader can't be sure whether he means what he's saying or whether he doesn't, because either way is bad for me, because either he means it all, in which case he becomes intolerable, you couldn't possibly like him, or he doesn't mean it, in which case he loses the dangerous edge that he has. Yeah. I mean, I hope he's entertaining, uh, and that, that is there. And I hope there's a hint that there's stuff in his background, in his past, that has damaged him. And I'm fairly sure there's a lot of self-loathing at the heart of his behaviour. And maybe that garners readers' sympathy. I hope so. I, I hope not to be sort of recruiting readers to think, yes, I agree with everything <laughs> you say, you know, because I don't agree with everything you say. Um, just on, on Jackson Lamb, when I interviewed Anne Cleave, she talked about how she now, when she was writing Vera, she wrote it 
for Brenda Blethyn. In her head, it was now Brenda Blethyn. Has that happened to you, with you with Gary Oldman? Have you had a slow horse since he's been playing the character? I've barely written Jackson Lamb since that show first started streaming because I was writing The Secret Hours all of last year. Yeah. Uh, I'm only now starting on a new Slow Horses book. And um, I don't think so, because I tend to write to the voice. But if I start giving him Gary Oldman's voice, that's not going to harm the character at all, because Oldman has done such a wonderful job of embodying Lamb. Amazing. And, and giving him that, that kind of life. So, and, and the same is true for the whole cast, in fact. I don't think that's happening. I'd probably be the last to know, but it wouldn't worry <laughs> me if it is. I don't think it's going to make a, a, any difference at all. Um, I encountered the, the television show before I read the book. And reading the book, I was very surprised at how faithful the series is to the book. That was down really to the producers, the, the people who originally wanted to make the book into a TV show, and to Will Smith, the lead writer on the show. They all were adamant that what they wanted was that book on the screen. And they went the extra mile and fought all the necessary battles, you know, as, as different elements became involved in the process to make sure that that was adhered to. When you see Slough House on the screen, the outside of Slough House, that is the building I used to walk past every day on my way to work. That is Slough House. That's wow. the building I decided I was going to put these characters in. And that made me feel great when I saw it on the screen. It's completely unnecessary. You know, nobody's going to know that that's yeah. the case. Well, they have a lot of them do because I, I talk about it all the time. <laughs> but, um, you know, it wouldn't make any difference if they'd just chosen, a, you know, a, an easier building and that they didn't have to seek permission for and, and all the rest. They didn't have to adapt because they, they do a lot of dressing on the pavement level to put in the, the Chinese restaurant, which is not there in real life. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't have hoped for a better adaptation. And is there any little bit of your head when you're writing The Secret Hours because of the, the success of the television show, are you sort of thinking, oh, this is rather cinematic. Oh, yes, this, is, this, would, look, this would look lovely on the screen. <laughs> uh, I don't really have a cinematic imagination. And when I'm, when I'm writing, I'm either completely taken up by the words on the page or I'm filled with the, the self-doubt um, and, the, and the horror that all authors, I think, are... It's not so much when they're writing, it's every time they stop and think about what they've done or look at what's left to be done. But no, for me, writing is all about the blank screen in front of me and it's, it's arranging the words on it, not the, uh, the images that I hope that the readers conjure up. I let the readers do that. Yeah. I don't really do it myself. OK. Uh, Mick, there's some questions we ask everybody who comes on the podcast. Sure. Uh, the first one is about your introduction to the world of books and reading. What age were you? Was there a particular title that, that unlocked it for you? I was very young when I learned to read because my mother was an infant school teacher and she taught me to read. And as a result, um, it's very difficult for me to pick a moment which changed everything. You know, it was all a very slow development from being a reader to, to knowing that I wanted to be telling stories as well as, as reading them. So I'd have to look a bit later in life into my teens and look at the books that really mattered to me then to make a big difference. It was when I started reading books like, um, let's say, To Kill a Mockingbird, that had a, a, an enormous impact on me, when you realise that fiction does things beyond telling you a story, that it's important to illuminate the way that you think about the world and, and how you feel about the, what's going on in the world. The stuff that gets into your heart during that period, stays with you. And certainly To Kill a Mockingbird has stayed with me. Uh, the next book I want to know about is one that you feel uh, more people should know about it. Back in the day, someone might have suggested Slow Horses, that sort of thing. Tricky one for me, um, this. The one I've alighted on is coming from a slightly different direction, perhaps. I've picked um, Something Happened by Joseph Heller. 
Heller is one of those authors whom everybody will focus on the one book. He wrote, I think it was seven novels, yeah. and he's only really remembered for one. He ought to be remembered for two. I mean, just between us, I think the other five can't probably be you know, more or less forgotten about. But something <laughs> happened. Some, somebody once described as doing for peace what, uh, what Catch-22 did for war. And I think that's quite a, a nice way of, of summing it up. It's a quite extraordinary novel about an ordinary existence that is going horribly wrong, even though the person telling about it doesn't seem to realise quite how bad it is. And it's um, very, very funny in its own way. You know, Heller had a unique perspective on life, and this was him training his sights on the ordinary American suburban post-war existence. And it's um, kind of harrowing in a way, but also very readable. Um, yes, it deserves to be read as much as Catch-22 is, deserves to survive in the same way, I think. It's funny the way huge literary stars can burn so bright and then somehow fade. That's true. And I suppose I've always felt, or maybe this is just me sort of justifying my own career, that um, it's it's best not to begin your career with a huge success because it the possibility is that it will overwhelm everything that, that comes afterwards. Heller, of course, had the perfect response to that when faced with the reader saying, oh, you've never written anything as good as Catch-22, he replied, well, who has? Which is <laughs> quite, quite a moment. <laughs> I think there are worse things to cope with than being recognised <laughs> as the author of a great classic of American literature, um, along with all the, you know, the, the good things in life that, um, that that book brought him. And the last book we want to know about are writers tend not to like this question, but I'm asking it anyway. Uh, is there a book that you wish you'd written, you admire it so much, you, you wish it was yours? Uh, I can see why writers don't like it, because in our hearts we only want to write the books we write. We want other people to love them as much <laughs> as we love the books we love. Uh, but if I had to pick one, I think it would be Gorky Park by Martin Cruz Smith, which to me is, is probably the finest thriller I've ever read. And I just think it's an extraordinary book. I've read it four or five times in the in the 40-plus years it's been published, and it seems to get better every time. It never gets old. It never gets stale. It's an extraordinary, remains very, very thrilling and very moving book. The character of Arkady Renko, the, um, the, the protagonist of Gorky Park, remains one of my favourite fictional creations. Mick Heron talking about his novels The Secret Hours and Slow Horses and his own reading loves. And it's certainly true that he's created a very unlikely group of collaborators. But of course, it's their differences that give us the enjoyment of reading about them. So, Alex, where else might we find that kind of appeal? Well, I love oddballs in fiction and I love it when they come together to do something. And I suppose one of the most obvious examples of this in, you know, very, very best-selling contemporary literature is Richard Osman's books, isn't it? It's the Thursday Murder Club. But I noticed as I was looking around and thinking about these kinds of titles that it's something we see loads in children's literature. And while there are lots of these books too in adult fiction... We tend to focus on the individual, don't we? But I like groups. So I'm going to start us off with a book from 1984. It is Nights at the Circus by Angela Carter, oh. which also exists in a brilliant audiobook reading by Ojoa Ando. Uh, and it's about a foundling, that great staple of fiction, who turns up on the doorstep of a brothel at birth and claims to be hatched from an egg and thereafter we go on a kind of odyssey she turns herself into a world-beating aerialist she ties up with a journalist she meets loads of people and this troupe find themselves going from London to Petersburg to Siberia and it is a wild 
ride of a novel, a very feminist novel, something about women coming into their own and just deciding that they don't need men to help them make their career, whether on the high wire or not. Uh, But it is just unforgettable. Sounds great. And also great to um, big up Angela Carter, who Mm. sort of seems to have slightly gone out of fashion or favour. I think she has had such a profound effect on so many generations of women writers, particularly later. But I think you're right. She's even then not read as much as she should be. There was a wonderful biography a couple of years ago that gives you more context to her life by Edmund Gordon. Should you want to read that, listeners? All right, so that's Angela Carter. Uh, Next book, please. Well, this is a rather more serious political novel. It is The Ragged Trousered Philanthropists by Robert Tressel. We go right back to 1914 for the posthumous publication of this book in which a working man finds himself desperate to stave off poverty by finding work in a town called Mugsborough, a fictional town. It's actually Hastings and it's drawn on Robert Tressel's own life. The subtitle will give you something of a clue. Being the story of 12 months in hell told by one of the damned. Now, you may get the impression here, Graham, quite rightly, that you're not in for the laugh of the century. Mm -hmm. But it is a profoundly powerful book about the philanthropists of the title are actually the workers of the title because what they're doing is donating their entire lives and their efforts to the capitalists and the overclass. And these are mercilessly criticised, lambasted, satirised in the book that follows. It's a long book. It's a dense book. It is a book that is a real icon amongst people who are trying to fight for a better future. Uh, Great to hear about it because actually it's such a famous title, but I think Mm. an awful lot of people don't really know the book or or haven't read it. So we'll go back and read the book. A third one, please. Very, very different and right up to date. I really enjoyed reading um, over the summer Tom Lake by Anne Patchett and also exists in a brilliant audio version read by Meryl Streep. It is about a woman called Lara who finds herself, now this is in some ways a pandemic novel, there she is during the lockdown in her cherry orchard on her cherry farm with her three daughters. So we're immediately getting those echoes of Chekhov. But of course they have to, they're gathering the harvest, they're up against, race against time here to get the cherries in uh, before they spoil. So she tells them the story and she tells them the story of how when she was a very young woman, she thought that she was going to be an actress. And she went off to be part of a theatrical company over the summer, putting on a production of Thornton Wilder's Our Town. She was going to then have her career, her fortune, but she didn't. And she partly didn't because of a doomed love affair with the dashing soon to become very famous, Peter Duke. She recounts the tale, and as in all those, in a sense, shaggy dog stories, it comes to life through all the tiny characters in this theatrical company, but it's also a brilliant example of an unreliable narrator. I hugely enjoyed it. I love Anne Patchett's work, and I really recommend this book. Great. Well, thank you so much, Alex. And if your interest has been piqued by any of the titles that we've mentioned, but you haven't been able to note down the details, don't worry, we've got you. Just visit the Amazon or Audible website, search for the Graham Norton Book Club, and you'll find our webpage with all of the books that get mentioned on the podcast.
Okay, let's trot on over to the Slow Horses stable yard. The clubbers tacking up to do that are Heritage Officer and Timeline Creator Gavern Bennett. Hello. Hi, Graham. All right. Fashion writer, Ladies Lit Squad founder, and Northerner in the South, Cherie Millington. Greetings to you. Hi. Ex-bookseller, now literary agent, Katie Blagden. Hello. Hello. And former librarian, now toy shop part-timer, it's Stuart Bain, who chose Slow Horses. So, Stuart, what was it uh, about Slow Horses that appealed to you? I know you like crime. Yeah, uh, and I've seen this series described as crime fiction, but I would say it's definitely more in the sort of spy thriller category, which I haven't read a lot of. And I chose this... This sounds stupid, but I didn't find it an easy read and I was interested to see what the group made of it. It had lots of characters, lengthy chapters, different points of view, all the secrets and lies, not knowing who to trust. I found that quite difficult on first read. Um, I I don't know if that's just because my attention span has been destroyed (laughs) by social media. So I thought it might, I was going to say TikTok, but who am I trying to kid? I'm far too old for TikTok. (laughs) But I'd be interested to see what the other clubbers make of it. Well, I agree with you, because often when people say, oh, there's too many characters, I just think, well, you're too stupid. But actually, (laughs) this book, there's an awful lot of world building. Uh, How did you go on with this, Sheree? Stuart, the books you select are always, without fail, books I would never read in a million years. And yes, it was difficult, so thank you. But do you know what? I've downloaded the uh, the sequel to this because <laughs> I wanted to know what was going to happen. So I started off hating it. Yeah, I think I'd end up loving it. I did. <laughs> okay, praise indeed. Uh, Gavern, I know you like spy things. So were you, were you expecting this to be more like Le Carre or Ian Fleming, that kind of thing? Yeah. When I first started reading, I thought, hang on, this is just going to be like Le Carre or something. And then it's the, I think it's because of the spies themselves, because it's a bit of the spy world you don't think about. Normally spies are winners, right? They're James Bond. <laughs> they're cool. <laughs> and these are the most uncool people you can think of. But I think, no, I think it's, it's genuinely a new voice in the spy genre for me. Yeah, that's why I love this club. And I think I, I would encourage everyone to read it. I'll just jump straight to it and say it's worth the read. <laughs> oh, well, okay. See you next time, Gavern. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> it's clocking up early. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, Katie, how did you get on with it? I'm surprised that like so many people seem to think it was hard to follow all the characters and stuff. I found it really accessible, which I don't know if I'm just like... I guess also I'd read a lot of fantasy where it's like shmer shmer on the road to shmer 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 and you're like, okay, I'll just try and keep up. The plot is quite straightforward for a spy novel, which is like, it's just that they're all terrible human beings, basically. <laughs> I must say, I was I was quite happy that I'd watched the television series first. It is a brilliant adaptation, I think. And, you know, as as you've discovered when you talked um, to Mick himself, you know, it is incredibly faithful. Writers aren't always guaranteed of that happening. But it also happens when books are just really, really well structured. I think if you have really good characters and a really good understanding of story structure, that's what enables the move to a great adaptation. And he's a funny writer as well. It is dark, funny. It's great, isn't it? I laughed on the bus, for example, uncontrollably, which is not (laughs) usual for me. (laughs) I think when you've got a load of failures, it's inherently 
comic, isn't it? When you've got a load of misfits and oddballs and people not getting on, it just yeah. brings its own comedy. Mm. Yeah, and I don't really want to those winner all action hero witty retort for every situation like James Bond I don't want to those characters yeah. I mean I guess it probably says more about me that I associate with the losers <laughs> and the, and the <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's also I think it's interesting to have a, a spy novel that seems to be like really grounded in a reality mm. it all seems very real doesn't it yeah and it's funny because my dad is a massive like spy novel fan, like you, Gavern. And I, when this first came out, I was a bookseller, so and I was like, "Oh, great, one for dad." Instantly bought it for him. And was like, "There you go, there's your latest spy novel." And he hated it because he loves the James Bond and the like. It's the ultimate male fantasy, you know, like swanning off and like, right. of course, I can fly a plane one handed whilst also, you know, like <laughs> opening champagne and I don't know, getting off with a woman or something, you know. And it's like, there's no fantasy in this, is there? <laughs> it's grim. But, you know, you're all sort of hitting on something really interesting about, you know, the James Bond thing, Ian Fleming writing in a kind of reaction to sort of post-war greyness and giving people this fantasy life of exquisite food, fine wines, cigars, women on tap. And we're not in that world anymore, obviously. And Mm. it is, I suppose, another kind of fantasy, a sort of reverse fantasy that you can succeed even when you've been slung on the Completely Are you saying these are the spies we deserve? (laughs) I suppose I might be. (laughs) We deserve spies who fart a lot. Um, That that was something that really surprised me. You don't get a lot of farting. Not enough outside of children's books. And I I thought that kids kids fiction tons of farts. Yeah, all all the fart the world over super popular. (laughs) But that that grounds it in reality again. Everything felt very real. These characters. I don't think in any work place people are passing wind like that i found that quite vile imagine oh, yeah. a I mean, meeting with your vile, superior but... and you crack one out <laughs> jackson why... man is a horrible man that's why he's such a horrendously brilliant character because it, he's just he's so unpleasant he's deeply unpleasant like as a person but then it's just all the physical stuff as well he's constantly sweaty and like yeah with like mm. sausage juice down his legs <laughs> he was quite <laughs> it was a visceral kind of just. Dis- yeah. for him. I'm re- imagining kind of like Toad of Toad Hall crossed with like Stick <laughs> of the Jump. <laughs> and, in, and in the book, those characters, I mean, I for me, you kind of, you kind of are interested and engaged with all those characters. What about the plotting? Was there enough to the plot? There were enough twists and turns? Were you satisfied with the resolution? The, the plot with the, the person that was kidnapped and everything. I found that interesting, actually, because I, I got completely suckered. You know, when you realise who's being kidnapped and the premise of it. I didn't. When I got to the end of it, I thought to myself, there wasn't really a plot. It was all kind of petty, like, administrational infighting. It was a bit like, you know, the thick of it, where these these people are just kind of making their own drama internally. Nothing really happened externally. There was no major threat to the UK from anyone. There was no one. It was all, like, bickering (laughs) inside. And there was so petty and vindictive to their colleagues but then I think that I think that's kind of the what Alex was saying about like the spies we deserve it's entirely their own fault that all of this spirals out of control and goes so badly wrong and it's just brilliant that it kind of this what should be something quite straightforward just turns into an absolute mess and it's like nothing to be done but that's that's why I find it interesting you see because not anything big happens in the book a lot of it is actually 
psychological, right? If you mm. think about it, like the kidnapping and everything, it's like, what what would it mean? It was not Jason Bourne, right? It's not somebody jumping through a window, <laughs> <laughs> killing four guys. Yeah. yeah, these spies are clearly low on budget. They've got there's a lot of there's a lot of talk of the budget. They haven't got money for these big things. Can't replace the windows they're smashing through. No, God no. Well, I suppose in that way, it's you know we've mentioned Bond, but he is much more in the tradition of Le Carre, where there's a lot of sort of grimness of trying to make things work. And the daily and petty betrayals, which is what spying is all about. And I think you need to consider, do you need, like, an entire city at threat for it to be exciting? Or is just the life of one teenage boy actually... That's a serious enough situation. And I thought McCarran was really good at making us care about this guy and the sort of the, the penultimate chapter where it all sort of resolves. I found that as gripping as that opening chapter that was a big set piece. And I, I think he was setting out his stall quite clearly, like this is opening was what you might expect from a spy novel. You're actually going to get something completely different. And as you go on to read the series, I think you really appreciate that world and the fact that it's such a contrast for like the big showy explosions and villains in their lair. This is much more <laughs> grounded in reality. Um, All right, for new listeners, I should explain that we have a scoring system in place. Uh, There are 10 points going a begging uh, for how likely you are to recommend this book to a friend. So let's start with, uh, well, let's start with Gavern because he's already already declared his intention. So (laughs) uh, how likely are you to recommend this book to a a friend out of 10? I already have. I recommend it to some friends. Um, I'll give it a solid out of 10 because you can say to people, there's some books to come and there's a series around it as well. So there's a whole world you can get to a definite solid 8 out of 10. 8 out of 10. Uh, Cherie? Yeah, I'm going to shock myself. Because I, I, I went into this kind of not wanting to like it, but it wet my whistle because there's a lot of characters and a lot of backstory. Okay. So I, I will be reading the next one. So I would give it an 8 out of 10. Okay, whistle wetted. Uh, Casey, how are you feeling about it? I, I yeah, I really loved it, and I've it's the second time round of for me reading this, and I enjoyed it just as much the second time round. I would love to just put in here that Stuart's doing my book next week, and he has a tradition of dragging my choices through the mud. So I'd like you to remember this moment, Stuart. (laughs) Just remember how lovely I'm about to be when I say it's a delightful eight out of ten for this one for me. Noted. I mean, I don't think we should have horse trading. (laughs) I know we've got a horsey theme, but we're not into bartering here. These are honest, critical... Reactions, guys. Come on. I, I, I won't let it influence you. <laughs> Three eights. Is Stuart going to do better than eight? Uh, how likely are you to recommend this book to somebody? Well, I was thinking about an eight for it, but uh, I feel like I maybe need to, to bump that up a bit. But I, I would definitely recommend this. I would recommend it to people who like a really satisfying, well-constructed story. And I think there's nothing better than finding an author that you like and they've got like seven, eight, nine books in the series, so you can really immerse yourself in that world. It's like a treat when you know that there's yeah. loads more to come. So I am going to give it a nine. Okay, a nice high scores to start the series. Time to find out what we are reading next time. And Katie, you're quite right, it is your choice. Uh, what have you got for us? Yeah, I've got Her Majesty's Royal Coven by Juno Dawson, which is it's her first adult novel. She is known more for YA, and it is just 
a fantastic contemporary fantasy. It's got witches and Yorkshire and spells and demons and sex and Spice Girls. And I mean, there's literally like so much to love in this book. I absolutely adore it. So hopefully. Wow, you're really selling it. I know. Really <laughs> so much to like I do for a living. <laughs> well, I must say, I was about to roll my eyes as you described it until you got the Spice Girls and you and you reeled it back a bit there. So. <laughs> I mean, the Spice Girls are a big theme, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, Judo Dawson's Her, Her Majesty's Royal Coven. That is our book next time. Thank you very much, Katie. Thanks all for discussing Slow Horses. Uh, I'll talk to you along the way. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Now, for anyone who's ever had a book deadline, and believe me, I know how that feels. There was a point at which my publishers got very worried. When I got off the phone to them, I pledged to myself. I actually said out loud, I will do nothing but write today. And then got on the internet, drove to Greenford and bought a puppy. Shabra Kasandi found her first success as a stand-up with her show Asylum Speaker at the 2006 Edinburgh Fringe Festival and later in The Secret Policeman's Ball. Since then, she's been one of the most successful comedians on the circuit as well as being a broadcaster and novelist. But a lot of the time, she found things far from funny when she was struggling to focus on the right things, not focus on the wrong things and beating herself up for both. Then, in her 40s, she was diagnosed with ADHD and the way her brain worked started to make more sense. Which led to her book, Scatterbrain, How I Finally Got Off the ADHD Roller Coaster and Became the Owner of a Very Tidy Sock Drawer. When we spoke, I started with those early days of finding out about the condition. The moment of diagnosis wasn't like one moment for me. It's been quite a number of years where... It's usually boyfriends that would say, do you think you might be ADHD? And I'd be like, what makes you say that? Why does everything have to have a label? Why do people think otters are cute? They bite each other's noses off. I never went to Disneyland until I was 35. Have you seen the woman that works at the co-op? She looks just like Ricky Gervais. So that was my conversation. And I was fine with that. Other people found it frustrating. And then in lockdown, I was diagnosed and... When I spoke about it publicly, I think it was just a tweet, I wondered if some people would go, oh, here we go, someone else has got something. But the opposite happened. I was inundated, and I don't use that word lightly, by people going, oh, my gosh, you've just described how I feel. How did you get diagnosed? And so many people needed to talk to me about it. And, oh, it it was kind of heartbreaking and amazing in equal measure. And that's when I thought, I want to write a book. And it strikes me in the book, because, you know, in memoir, we revisit things and we tell the story and they're emotional, whatever. But you're now telling stories and you've got the code. You've got the key that explains what was really going on then. What was that experience like? Upsetting sometimes, because it's not really the ADHD that's problematic. It's the not knowing that you have ADHD and spending a lifetime beating yourself up. And I'm interested because you wrote the book very soon or kind of, you know, almost concurrently with the diagnosis and and going on to medication and things. So when it came to doing the audio book, you know, the book is finished. It's it's a fixed thing and you're in the booth reading it. Were you getting fresh insights as you were reading it going, oh, damn, I wish I could go back in and do da-da-da-da? I 
did. I did, although I did then surprise myself sometimes too, just as I, I would be reading it and thinking, oh, I should have mentioned such and such. A couple of paragraphs later, I would mention such and such. So, oh, brilliant. So that did happen. And also I sometimes you have to decide what kind of book it's going to be. You know, this was not going to be an academic book, but I think there's a whole other book in talking about how to then heal yourself from years of not knowing about ADHD, which would involve a lot of psychotherapy sort of knowledge and an experience. And in fact, I'm starting an MSc in psychotherapy, which is a massive gift I've given to myself that I don't think I would have had the wherewithal to give myself that gift before diagnosis. And do you enjoy being alone in the booth with the sound of your own voice? Oh, you know, it was hard. It's one thing writing it over days, weeks, months, whatever, and with changing bits and bobs. There's the other thing of being confronted in a little booth where you feel so isolated with your own voice and your own head. And I have to confess that I had to take a day off in the middle because I I got ill. And then I was fine. I was absolutely fine the next day. And I have no doubt that that was my emotions just going, you can't do this over four days. And somehow when reading it aloud, mm-hmm. that that's the first moment you realise this book is in the world. Yeah. You know, the fact that it's coming out of your mouth, now it exists. How are you meeting people who've read it, knowing that they know these very kind of intimate things about you now? Well, happily, I tend to forget everything that I've put in it. Um, (laughs) it's you know that's the brilliant thing of having a memory that isn't forensic and I'm quite surprised people know about certain things and I go god did I write that (gasps) did I tell you about that but I had a brilliant editor actually who there was some one or two stories where she said this is really personal are you sure you want this out there and Yeah, it was when I was reading it out loud that I thought I'm really thankful to that editor because, yeah, I think I might have had to move to Honolulu um, and just run a sort of jewellery store and never see anyone again. While we've got you, there are some questions we ask all our guests on the podcast. The first one is, is there a book that got you into reading? Do you know what? I wish I could say something really deep, but I'm just going to go with Andy Pandy and the Snowman. Because we haven't had it before. We haven't had it right. before. I thought you were going straight into with Enid Blyton, which we get all the time. But no, no. Andy Pandy has not come up. Well, because I remember having to learn English. I remember not being able to speak English. And Andy Pandy and the Snowman was the first book that I've read by myself in the, oh, wow. in the English language. And I remember being so overjoyed. I shouted to my mum, Mommy, Mommy, I read it. I read it. I will never forget the triumphant feeling I had of reading a whole book in English by myself. That That is a really special story because, yeah, most people we talk to, that, that isn't their experience. So brilliant. Um, uh, the other book we want to know is a book you turn to for comfort. I, I mean, interesting, I'm sure your book will now become that for people. Oh, mine's not a book like mine. Mine's when I was in, uh, I spent some time in Los Angeles when I was 26 and I bought the complete works of Edgar Allan Poe. All that gothic, 
world that you just lose yourself in for me is comfort food excellent and the last book we want to know is the one that you recommend to people the one that you give as a gift the one that you tell people about all the time always close 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 music 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 boys 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 it's by viv albertine um formerly of the slits punk group it is the most honest and truest female voice there is out there. Absolutely brilliant. Shabarak Kasandi on the books that inspired her, as well as her own new title, Scatterbrain. It is nearly time for us to put our horses of all speeds out to pasture. But before we do, this is the moment in each of our book club meetings that our audiobook insider and chart maven, Holly Newson, pops her head out of the basement, puts her abacus under her arm and tells us what it is we should be looking out for in the way of bookish movers and shakers. Holly, hello and help us sound better informed than we are. Uh, What have you got for us this time? Hi, Graham. Well, first up. Politics on the Edge by Rory Stewart is doing extremely well. Um, It's up there in the most sold non-fiction chart in hardback, top of the biographies chart in audiobook and second in print, and it's topping the history chart. The audiobook, though, is a hearty 16 hours and 20 minutes. Um, (laughs) I mean, I like Rory Stewart, but really. (laughs) If you ask me, you are definitely going to want to pop that straight on 1.2 speed. You'll know as soon as you listen. Um, So this book is basically about politics and government being a broken system. There is also a fascinating description of Liz Truss in there. Really? Um, And (laughs) it's um, it's quite insightful. It it explains a few things. Uh, Interestingly, though, Theresa May's book, Abuse of Power also looking at some of the failings in politics, which released on the same day as Rory's, is nowhere near Rory in the charts. So, you know, make of that what you will. Rory Stewart's From the Rest is Politics, which is a hugely successful podcast he does with Alistair Campbell. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And Theresa May doesn't have one of those. Okay, well, there's the power of the podcast. Everyone should have one. Well, nearly (laughs) nearly everyone does. Uh, What is next, Holly? Um, So it wouldn't be a chart section without me mentioning TikTok, the place where books go seemingly viral of their own accord. Um, Things We Left Behind by Lucy Score is the third in a romance series where the first, Things We Never Got Over, was a huge TikTok hit. Um, This third book came out at the start of autumn and was straight into the most sold fiction chart. Um, These books mix romance a bit of crime thriller and a smattering of erotica. Um, so basically some of the best-selling genres all in one. And whether or not that mix works, I will leave up to the fans. I hear you. Uh, the good thing, of course, Holly, is that you're keeping an eye on TikTok, or I should say book talk. I do know some things, uh, so that I don't have to. I mean, I don't I don't think I'm ever going to get into it. TikTok has is, is passed me by now, hasn't it? It's too late to catch up. <laughs> Uh, what's our what's our final one we should be watching Holly Um, well lastly I wanted to mention a big success over the summer TV's Rob Rinder released his first fiction book a crime thriller called The Trial and it is still in the crime thriller and mystery chart Um, it's a Sunday Times bestseller and a very intriguing story about a pupil a trainee barrister who ends up investigating murder Um, it's basically one of those books that you can race through while trying to be the detective yourself uh, and if you look very closely, there's lots of references to Rob Rinder's own life in there. No, it's true. I I read it. And actually, that Rob Rindery thing does give it that bit of authenticity. It makes it mm. it makes it more interesting. Yeah, it's good. Uh, thank you very much, Holly. Don't forget, you can find details of all the books.
books we talk about on our webpage. Just search for the Graham Norton Book Club on Amazon or Audible and all the information you need will be right there. Our clubbers have gone off to see if Stuart can close down Orkney bus station by leaving his tog bag outside the ladies' loo. So it just remains for me to thank Alex Clark for allowing me into her gang today. Thank you very much, Alex. Oh, it's been a pleasure to be back. I know, it's nice, isn't it? Yeah. It's really nice. What do we do all summer? Just sit there waiting to start again. I know, stupid life without book club. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Just to remind you all, like our last series, the Graham Norton Book Club podcast is available on Audible or wherever you get your podcasts. So spread the word far and wide and leave us a rating and review if you have a moment. Also, don't forget to join us next time when our book is Juno Dawson's Her Majesty's Royal Coven and we'll be hearing from actress and stand-up Andy Osho about her new novel, Tough Crowd. Till then, happy reading and listening and goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.